0: Shalom and welcome to the Great Day Podcast. I'm your friend and host, Mayor K, and today we have a very special guest all the way from Montana. But before I introduce him, I want to give a big shout out to the sponsor of this episode, Mushy. M U S H I E, Mushy.com. Mushy and Lady Fagenson, back in 2018, they started a baby product company and now. A couple years later, they're in over 500 retail baby stores throughout the country. Target.com, Amazon, Mushy.com. You can find their products from pacifiers, baby bibs, dinnerware, organic swaddles. I have never been interested in any of these baby products in my life. till recently, I became an uncle. I have two nephews who are the cutest and, uh, and now I'm in the baby game. I got to say, I'm a baby. I'm not a father, but I'm a Funkle and I'm always looking out for great baby products and this is a one-stop shop for many of them. I also love they have these posters and I love the feeling poster. They're just great, as, uh, uh, great, blah, 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 great illustrations and uh, just a lot of fun. They really liven up a room and have great messages as well. And if you're a mom, be sure to check out the Mushy Community Facebook group. They have over 10,000 members, and it's all support, tips, whatever you need, you can find it right there. And for a limited time, for just the first few hundred orders, if you're a new customer and, of course, a Mayor K fan, a Great Day podcast listener, you could use the promo code Mayor K25, M-E-I-R-K-A-Y 25, when you check out your order on mushy.com. So be sure to do so when you do it. Yeah. All right. Now we're ready to introduce Rabbi Chaim Shaul He moved out with his wife, Javi, to Bozeman, Montana, where, what, how. I know you'll hear all about it in the podcast. But beyond the incredible work that he's doing out there with his wife, leading a, a, a community in Montana from all places, he also, they, they together have adopted five children since they've gotten married, uh, they got married and just like any young couple, they wanted to build their own family. And once they started hearing some challenges, some obstacles, they've made the decision not once but five times already to adopt. And how they went about doing that and what it takes and the mental capacity and the emotional capacity, all of it is shared right here on this very special and meaningful podcast. Without further ado, there is so much I learned and so much inspiration in this podcast coming up. So I'd like to introduce to you Rabbi Chaim Scholl, Brooke. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another fantastic podcast. How do I know be fantastic? Because our guest is a fantastic human being. Here I am with Rabbi Chaim Shaul Brook, Shliach Rabbi from Montana, Bozeman, Montana. And here we are, I gotta say, I have to thank you so very much because you're literally just a touch and go. You're visiting New York, we're here in New York City by the OL, the resting place of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And you just, we were speaking a few weeks ago and you're like, all right, Mayor, next time I'm in town, I'm going to be here for like 24 hours. So we came out here to meet you here and thank you for taking the time to do this podcast uh, with me. Pleasure.
1: 18 hours in New York, but you know, for you, who wouldn't give a few hours? Wow. Legend,
0: legend, legend. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this, um, to this time. I don't know if we actually ever formally met. But your story precedes you, and um, and and what you're all about. So I'm just, its really honor to to be sitting here with you.
1: It's my pleasure. Your uh, your reputation precedes you, and I'm doing this mostly for my kids. If I'm going to Mayor <laughs> K, the Mayor K, of course. So here I am. <laughs> all right, finally
0: the all right. So that's the music, right. The There's music, definitely
1: perks in being popular.
0: There you go. The music videos are starting to that's pay right. off. in dividends. Absolutely. All right, Fantastic. wow, that's amazing. So, but like I, I mentioned, Bozeman, Montana, like that's—I mean, that's that's a- God's country. God's, as they say, I
1: I don't want to mess with the Holy Land, the the promised land. But if there was a second best to the Holy Land, definitely Montana. Um, When I first came to Montana years ago, someone said to me, he says, you know, Rabbi, God used to be in the bigger cities and he got sick of the congestion and the pollution. So he moved out west and he hangs out in Montana. And I laughed when he said that to me. But I think in some level it might be true. But we can talk about that
0: later. But I do think it's God's country. Well, you grew up in New York. I grew up in Crown Heights in the, in the hood. In the hood. And so for you, was it a massive change of like being to be like from this crazy hustle bustle, living in each other's space? And like now you have like what acres of land between you and your next I, neighbor?
1: I'll fast forward. In other words, I, I, coming to New York now is, is somewhat hard for me. I love coming to the OL. I love the spirituality. I love the kosher restaurants. But the traffic and the lifestyle ain't my cup of tea anymore. Um, but going back to Montana, I mean, yeah, I grew up in the hood We're just like any typical kid in the hood, you know, right. you live with all the New York style stuff. And now I live, I mean, my house is on 1.4 acres. My closest neighbor is not miles away, right. but there's definitely plenty of land. The kids have plenty of places to run around when it's not, you know, when it's not covered in 17 feet of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, right. but the quality of life, the pace of life is very different. And once you get used to that, you don't want to go back to a big city.
0: Mm. What, what is one thing though you miss from the big city life?
1: I miss the energy a little bit. You know, I, I love my New York energy. And I think in Bozeman, uh, there's definitely a big segment that appreciates that New York energy. Um, you're still
0: able to maintain it out
1: there? I am. I am. I mean, listen, I still don't have the, I don't have to utilize it as much as you do if you're in a big city. I don't meet with people 11 o'clock at night to, right. to have meetings. You know, we get a good night's sleep um, and we have a, a more balanced day, if you wish. But the energy, the focus of, you know, not resting. You know, just because you had a successful program 15 minutes ago doesn't mean that now you sit back and relax. we got to move on. There's another. we got to do something. We can't yeah. be bored. Of course. So that lack of needing or wanting boredom and that interest in constantly growing and having that energy, that's a gift that I got growing up here. Remember, my wife grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Her parents run a Chabad Center there. And so for her, moving to Montana was more natural, even though the mm-hmm. weather between Texas and Montana is very different. Great dress. Um, I took her there to see it in Montana in the, in the summer. <laughs> I took it oh, to see Montana. Montana. So that's how you yeah. close the deal. That's I mean, right. you're
0: surprising me yourself by saying that with nine months of the year, it's, 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 it's snow. I, Correct. I, I always, I don't know, for some reason, I always thought that Montana was just rolling green hills and it was just like...
1: No, no, I don't know where you got that image from. We have beautiful rolling hills and, you know, green hills in the summer. Right. They're not such hills. They're kind of mountains. I mean, we're, we, it's not the Catskill Mountains. It's real mountains. It's real mountains, um, But yeah, we get snow starting from easy, easily the beginning of September all the way until the end of May, maybe early June. There's been snowstorms even on the 4th of July. Um, And we see snow all 12 months a year. So I see snow in the beginning of July on the mountaintops, and I see the same thing at the end of August. So Uh there's very little time where it's actually um, no snow at all. But our spring going, especially into the summer, June, July, August, even September, are incredible months for those that are scared of the cold. Wow. Um, but if you're scared of the cold, I do not recommend you hang out with us in you know midwinter. You can come in you know October, November. Sure. It won't be minus 20 yet. But in January, February, March, Bitter. and even to the Passover Seder, you don't want to be there unless you want to be with, uh, within a foot of snow.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow. I mean, I'm sure the kids enjoy it at
1: times when it gets to May, you know, they they they've had it, but they love skiing and they love going, you know, there's a lot to do in the
0: winter if you embrace the activities. Mm. It's
1: all about your mentality and, perspe- and you know, how you look at it.
0: Before we delve into to kids, which is a big part of why we I you know, I'm I'm so interested in talking to you, but before that, for those of you who don't understand what it means to be a shliach, what you are doing with your life as a rabbi in Montana, what what is the movement about and what why Bozeman Montana?
1: So I'm part of the Chabad movement, Chabad Lubavitch. It's the it's, you know, 300 year old part of the Hasidic movement, but particularly within the Hasidic movement, there's a lot of different types of Hasids. Um, and if you live in New York, you get to get a better idea of those different flavors of Hasidim. But Chabad is, is very much focused on two primary issues internalization. Meaning not just superficial activity, not just superficiality and following a Hasidic master, a Rebbe, but actually internalizing uh, character refinement, internal change, you know, working on ourselves to be better people. Um, and second, secondly is, is the idea of, of treating human beings with utmost dignity and love, which is something our society has never ceased to need and seems to always have a lack of. And so, you know, with those two ideas in mind, you think of places that don't have established or structured Jewish communities, especially not traditional Orthodox Jewish communities. And my Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, whose Ohel we're sitting quite close to. Right, his um, spot. Correct, is, it, you know, inspired me as a kid. I grew up in Kranites, like I said, 12 years living with the Rebbe until his passing in 94. And I was very much inspired Not just in theory, not just reading his books, but every time I'd walk into a Hasidic and when the Rebbe was talking, this is what he was talking about. We got to go out there and change the world. Changing the world doesn't happen with bumper stickers, doesn't happen with Facebook memes. Those are cool things to have. You get a lot of shears, it's really cool, but that doesn't change the world. Changing the world happens with working with individuals at where they are and working with them to help them in their journey to become better human beings. Um, to become more observant Jews, to become people that are also ambassadors of light. And so as a yeshiva student, as a rabbinical student, I spent two summers in Montana, the summer of O four and oh five, on behalf of Chabad World Headquarters. Um, I actually went with my sister in uh, in the winter of oh five, right before New Year's of O six. I said you I were a
0: single man then? I was single All and right. I couldn't find
1: any yeshiva students that wanted to go in the winter to Montana. So I said to my sister, what are you doing for winter break? She said, nothing. I said, meet me in Montana. We're going to make Hanukkah parties. Wow. And so uh, perhaps.
0: And why, and why Montana? Because well, were, I had spent two there summers there and, and you I said, you know,
1: yeah, I loved it. And I knew the community at that point. I knew a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I said, let's go make Hanukkah parties. So we did four parties in Billings, Bozeman, Missoula and Helena. And then uh, a week later, I started dating what was to be my wife, Javi. I flew to San Antonio. We dated for a couple weeks. And we got married. So after we got married in, in March of 06, I said to her, and I, we already spoke about it during our dating process that Montana was on the radar.
0: Right. So this um, is something you discussed with your wife beforehand. She knew that. On was, our
1: second date, I discussed that Montana might be a possibility. Would that
0: have been, if she said that she was not into that, would, would that have been a big, like, you know, a big game changer? If she fight? would
1: have said she's not into Montana, I, I could have lived with that. But we knew before going into dates that doing what we do, this type of work, you know, not just living for ourselves and our own spiritual well-being, but sharing that with the world was something we both wanted to do, which is already something that we had in common from day one. Montana, I waited until the second date before I brought it up, because listen, the reality is that even though now I'm so natural with Montana, in 2006, Montana was still a very... It was a weird concept, Uh you know, because Chabad had been to many places. At that point, Utah was well established, even Boise, Idaho. But Boise, Idaho is a city of a half a million people. Mm -hmm. Montana, the biggest city, which is Billings, is 100,000 people. Now it's 110,000. But the city that we were potentially looking at, Bozeman, was a city of 38,000 people. So the percentage of Jews is obviously much less we're going to open a chabadas for thirty-eight thousand people, and then the weather component mm-hmm. and the the remote how remote it is is definitely a component. You sure. can't get there with a direct flight. There's very few flights, um, and it's living remotely, and that could be lonely. Yes, and so getting her on board was obviously vital. But she was on board with the idea, and then once we we we, we really locked it in when we spent the summer visiting a few weeks uh, in the summer of 06, and the rest is history.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing, and. Arriving in, in Bozeman in in, uh, in Montana, did you have what, what were one what of the most biggest challenges you had? Establish yourself in the community, and uh, what kind of resistance did you have from the existing Jewish communities that took place? So
1: in Montana, before we arrived, at that time, there was a bit of a hundred-year period where the only established Jewish communities were small reformed Jewish congregations throughout the state. And the resistance was very minimal. Um, they were very welcoming. It took them time, some of them, until they, realized that they, until they started considering us a threat. I still don't know why they consider us a threat. Still today, really? Yeah, because, I mean, th- to many Jews, when there's another game in town, so to say, it's competition. I never saw it as competition. I saw it as, you know, two opportunities to experience Judaism. And when we can work together, let's do that. But there were definitely those within the community that saw it as a threat. The majority did not. The majority are people that I get along with till this very day. A lot of people go to both congregations. They'll go to a Hanukkah party here and a Hanukkah party there. But at the time, there was not a lot of resistance. Actually, they were entertaining, hiring Chavi to run their Hebrew school. Again, in the initial stages, it never panned out, but that's the thought process. And so we didn't have, we had, you know, we had maybe a handful of families that were excited to see us coming. Majority weren't sure what to make of it. These Hasidic people, they're out of their mind. They're moving them. Up. And that was really for both right. from- Fish Crown, out of water. From Crown Heights and from Montana, both sides of the coin, they thought we were out of our mind. Montana, yeah. small place. What are you going to do there? How are you going to survive? And I remember standing at Kingston, and Union, Kingston Avenue and Union Street with one of my best friends from my childhood. And he said to me, I mean, is it a place that you can ever have a minion on Shabbos, like a prayer quorum where you're going to get a group together? And I said to him, and I still remember the conversation because I said to him, I said, Shalimala. It's not about dominion. It's about the 10 um, campaigns that the Rebbe instituted of how you reach out to people. You know, in mezuzahs, building a mikveh, which we did. Wow. And I said, that, that's a lifelong of work I have set aside. And today the proof is in the pudding that we have three Chabad houses in Montana as a result of that initial moment. And oh, wow. so we opened up a second one in Missoula with a wonderful couple. And now there's a third one in Kalispell in the Flathead Valley. And so Yiddishkeit is really, Judaism is really flourishing in Montana. But that takes... You know, that takes a moment where someone says, you know, I see a future there. Let's go make it happen.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I know you're very passionate about the, um, initially at least, uh, the mezuzah campaign. You Your goal was to have a mezuzah uh on every single door of every single Jew- Jewish doors, Jewish doors, yes. <laughs> every Jewish door. every door, I need a million mezuzahs, <laughs> There but, you go. Uh, So what's that thirteen hundred? Um, and how how's that campaign going? And what's know, the significance? Why from all the mizu- from all the mitzvahs, all the commandments? Why was the mezuzah so important for you to, to campaign about? The, the,
1: the, it's it's really it, it has a lot of components to it. First of all, the mezuzah is an easy mitzvah to fulfill, right? All you got to do is knock it on the door or double you know double sided tape. It's on the door. Sure. You fulfill the mitzvah. Now right. your house has a mezuzah. Secondly, and I guess you through the door to the people's house. Well, that's a lot of you know the the people that are you know sort of uncomfortable with Chabad's activities use that as a tool. They say no, no, but they say, oh, look, he's just using the mezuzah to get in the door. First of all, I would love for them to let me in the door. Who wouldn't? Yeah. If you put a mezuzah on someone's door and they invite you in for a cup of tea or a glass of water, why not? Sure. But more importantly, I think that in an era that we live in, um, it's important to identify as a Jew, and a mezuzah is the greatest form of identification. You're living in rural America. Montana is the epitome of rural America. And you're putting a mezuzah, which means you're letting everyone else in the neighborhood know that this house has a Jew. Now, it doesn't mean everyone knows that a mezuzah means you're Jewish, but there's enough people that do, especially the, those that don't like us. They seem to always know that a mezuzah means that a Jew lives there.
0: But you so, find, sorry to call you, but do you, you find resistance uh, towards Judaism or, or Jewish people, anti-Semitism in Montana?
1: Very little. Yeah, very okay. little. I mean, I've been walking around Montana permanently for almost 13 years, and and non-permanently for already 16 years, and I can't even recall one moment where yeah. I've ever been accosted. Or, on the contrary. People, I mean, just yesterday in Walmart, literally, yeah, yeah yesterday morning in Walmart, I was, check, I, was, I was waiting at the checkout and a lady came up and said, you're the one from the menorah. What do you call yourself? I said, a rabbi he says, come, I'll check you out here at this aisle, which was great. So nice. we get that all the time and it's, it's positive. A lot of it is, remember, you know, anti-Semitism and ignorance is something that, you know, sometimes cross paths. And we sometimes don't know how to differentiate the two. We get offended so easily because someone said something or, or asked something. They simply don't know. Right. It's an opportunity for education. Now, if someone's a diehard anti Semite, we've got to deal with them accordingly. But the majority of people, when they look at you with that look, they're not looking and saying, hey, there's the Jew. Right. They're looking and saying, hey, what in the world is that guy wearing on his head? Right. And so what I do is I walk up to them right in the grocery and say, hey, you look a little you know, uh, confused or uncertain. A, I want yeah. you to know I'm Jewish interesting. I remember in a gas station in Helena, Montana, someone, I walked up to someone and he goes, I've never met someone like your kind before. And I was like, fantastic. And I'm glad you did now. You know that I speak English. Yeah. I love jelly beans, Mike and Ikes. I, yeah. I drink the same garbage that they sell, you know, and 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 I'm a normal American who happens to be Jewish and loves being Jewish and identifies as being Jewish. And I think a mezuzah reflects that. And the response to the mezuzah campaign was incredible. My grandmother had passed away in Israel. And one of our relatives said, you know, I want to give you $5,000 to start a mezuzah campaign. And uh, the rest is history because it's now years, years later. The mezuzah campaign not only exists in Montana, but many, many Chabad rabbis and rabbis have called us to try to emulate it in their communities, which I love. mm -hmm. But we also get requests online from people all over the country. Can we send them a mezuzah? And when we get those requests, I'll send them a mezuzah for free. The first mezuzah on the front door is for free. But what I'll do as a courtesy, I'll always call the Chabad rabbi and say, hey, Someone in your town wants a mezuzah. Would you like to take it or would you like me to send them one? And most of the times they'll go for it. But I think we need to create that environment where people have the mezuzah on the door because it's an easy mitzvah to do. And why not make it easy? We don't have to make mitzvah. I mean, there's plenty of mitzvahs that are hard. There's no reason not to embrace the ones that are easy. And more importantly, let them identify. There's a woman that said she's a daughter of a Holocaust survivor. It took her eight years of us back and forth in our community and being part of our family that she finally felt comfortable putting up a mezuzah because to her, mezuzah meant I'm outing myself to the whole community and I don't want to do that. She was scared.
0: Right. 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 That's, wow. That's, that's amazing. Another great program that you have going on in Montana, which I love is the operation dignity project, project dignity, which I, which I find uh, amazing and fascinating because what I've come to realize is that, and, and all the respect to it, that a lot of people in the Jewish community, always like to extend themselves to the Jewish community first. Like, you know, I want to take care of my own and then, yeah, if there's money or time. As, the, as they should. As? Okay, as they should. As they should, if that's... At least opinion. that's my perspective. Okay, fair but, enough. But it's not, it's not either or. Either, well, but I, so I find with you, and I, I don't really see that with many other types of rabbis, rabbis, where they put efforts and time and money and into a project that that has no boundaries between race or creed or religion. Um, Absolutely.
1: And I think, you know, I, I I see that as a reflection of the way the rabbit taught me. Um, And again, I can do that in a place like Montana, perhaps a little easier, just because our population is much smaller. If I was in a big city, I would need a lot more funds to be able to do that. But when someone needs, just in a a couple of examples, I mean, someone needed, um, a Jewish woman in the community, an elderly woman needed uh, uh, hearing aids. She couldn't afford it. I stood up in Shul on Shabbos, on the synagogue, and I said, guys, we have a member of our community that needs hearing aids, and within an hour, and it's not a wealthy community, we had to put together the money, the two and a half thousand dollars that she needed for the hearing aids, but that's a Jewish woman. but. Uh, There's a physical therapist in town who is Jewish, but said that one of her clients who isn't Jewish um, needed glasses, couldn't afford to get glasses and her insurance wouldn't cover it. I said, how much do they need for glasses already? It's like $150, $200. I said, we got it. Project Dignity's got it. The thing about Project Dignity that I love most is that it's really done with dignity. There's There's no way a donor can come to me and they've tried and say, you know, Rabbi, where's the money going? I said, you have to have trust that I'm doing my job as a rabbi, as a leader in the community to, to take care of those that are needy, those that are in need. And I'm gonna do it with class so they don't feel like they're beggars, because they aren't. Most of the time, the people that are in need are people that are having a tough moment. Two weeks ago, a Jewish guy from Helena reached out and said, rabbi, I, 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 we're broke. We moved here with a job, the job doesn't exist anymore. And I said, do you get SNAP, do you get food stamps? It goes, yeah, but food stamps doesn't cover toilet paper and my cell phone bill is $40 and it's gonna get disconnected. So I said, do you have PayPal? No PayPal, so now you're in Helena, but I need to get you the money right away. He said there's Western Union two blocks away from my house. So I downloaded the app. And within an hour and a half or two hours, he had $150 so he can just get by and breathe. And I think that when you have a human dignity perspective, not just for the Jews. I mean, listen, I think it's important we take care of our brothers and sisters first. That's always because sometimes in, in the name of the greater good, we forget about our own. And that's mm-hmm. also a, a, a terrible crime. Why are you taking care of the elephants in Africa when there's people in your own community that are starving? There's nothing wrong with it. It's sure. important to take care of the elephants in Africa. but So we need to take care of our own, but never limit it. When someone standing there needs your help, it should never be limited to, like you said, race, creed, uh, sexual orientation, any of that. It's, sure. it's about taking care of human beings.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I and I know for myself. I mean, I know for myself that's something that I'm passionate about. Is is of course spreading kindness and doing good. And I opened up a nonprofit that helps those who are experiencing homelessness, and that that's covers people who are Jewish and who aren't Jewish. Homelessness people. is a,
1: a, I see it in Montana, especially. You know, I know California has a big dilemma with homelessness yeah, in Montana. That's, that's right. It's less because when you have nine months of winter, you don't want to be homeless in Montana. Oof. But the reality is we do have, we have a warming center in Bozeman where they can go sleep at night. Oh, wow. So just to make sure they don't freeze, literally freeze to death in the street. But my kids, even when I don't have any, I never, I barely carry cash. My yeah. kids make me crazy that I have to help every homeless person. Not only that, I was once pulling out of the grocery and there was a homeless person that I didn't have any cash. So... When I was in the grocery 10 minutes later, my kid said to me, Chaya, she said to me, we should really buy them some food and go back and bring it. Wow! So here I am, I'm buying some non-kosher bakery goods and, and a latte, and I'm driving back to this other part of town. And I pulled up and I said, listen, you really got to take my kid in the back because if it was up to me, I would have went home. And that's the reality that you know us adults... We, we like to help the world, but we also like our comfort zones. And if it means going out of our way, it's a little harder. Yeah. And my, I needed my, at that time, she was seven. I needed my seven-year-old to remind me that there's someone out there that's chilly and cold and probably hasn't had a meal in a while, go out and help them. And so that concept of just being there for human beings, um, no matter who they are, is really something that I got from the Rebbe, because I saw the Rebbe dealt with all types of people, Yes, um, Jews, Gentiles, didn't matter. Um, and I think if you live in a, in a rural community like I do, I think it's inevitable. You have to. I mean, there's no other option.
0: Mm. I, I I love it. You to segue into uh, you mentioned how you, your 7 year old at the time Chaya was, uh, brought, you know, opened your eyes and and step out your comfort zone. And I'm sure she does that constantly till today. But be, be, kids in general do that pretty good. They do. <laughs> they, they sort of yeah. They they definitely have you know I I think just you know a fresh look and an innocent way of just looking at the world. Where you know as an adult through life you know. Also, also not only innocent, I think it's
1: an incredibly kind way to look at the world. Yeah, I was walking in Yerushalayim once in Jerusalem and there was a homeless person near Ben Yehuda and Chaya, again, it was Chaya, she was then, she was even younger and she said to me, why is this person sleeping on the street? She's never seen that in Montana. Right. I said, they don't have a house. So... Uh, she said, why don't we get her, ha- get him a house? <laughs> oh. And I was like, I was, I was stumped. What do you, I, I said, you know, houses are, are really, I started stuttering. I, I couldn't, get, it's like, you're right, you know, we should not live in a world where a person has to sleep on the street. Now, of course, I mean, it's not, you know, in, in reality, we can't buy everyone homes. I can't, certainly. I don't have the funds for it. But what does that say about our world? What does it say that Vietnam vets all over Montana are the ones that are struggling most? They fought for our country. And where are we? And so, you know, I I really feel like my kids have really taken my, you know, innate
0: perspective and really upped it to a whole different level of how we see the world. Wow. That's that's very inspiring. And I think you're right. There there is always those awesome like those big moments when I when I go around trying fundraising for, you know, for for those who are experiencing homelessness, a lot, of, a lot of resistance does come from like, oh, what's that going to do? What's my few dollars, or what's this party, or what's this event going to help? You know, someone who's actually who doesn't have a home or is in a homeless shelter. But I think it goes back to, you know, to the back to the basis of dignity, where we also we're trying to a connect with a human being, build them back from the ground up. I know a lot of people who are on the streets who are who are homeless don't view themselves as a human being anymore. I, I saw a meme going uh going around a couple couple of weeks ago that showed a picture of a guy and the homeless
1: guy's asking him for money. And out of his mind, he's thinking, I should give him money, he's gonna use it for drugs and alcohol. And then he drives up and says, Hold on, what am I gonna use it for? Same thing. Mm. So suddenly with the guy in the corner, we have excuses why not to give them money because what are they going to use it for? You know, my grandmother, Esther Goldman, was a Crown Heights matron. She was she was the the the, the epitome Crown Heights uh, woman. And we she'd go on the subway every day to work. And when I'd go with her to work, she worked at Deitch Plastic actually for Muttle Deitch in Manhattan. Sure. And she'd go to on Spring Street. She'd get off everywhere. And we'd go on the train on the sixth train and the fourth train, the sixth train. And she'd always give a dollar to any homeless guy that came in and asked. And I once asked her, I said, Bubby, you know, the the black people are not giving their own people the tzedakah, the charity, why are you? She goes, I have to answer for what I do, not for what anyone else does. In other words, I have to be a kind individual. It's not relevant what anyone else does. And so I think part of being in Montana has taught me more than anything else is that I got to do the Rebbe's work. I got to do the work of spreading that love and light in a way that works for my community. And if that means walking over to a guy who's drunk out of his mind outside of the grocery and just... Putting your hand on his shoulder, like you do, way better than I do, and you have video cameras. I don't got videos. Guys following me, but just showing them authentic love. Because I mean, he's another one of God's creations, and and if I can't see him that way, then why do I expect the whole world to see me as something valuable? If if one human being is not valuable, then no human being is valuable, and the hell with everything.
0: Sure, every yeah, everybody, you know, what is it? You being here is God's way of saying that you matter. Correct. And if I don't
1: see you it that way, why should you know? We complain, for example, about how people see Jews, one of the ways to deal with that is start seeing other human beings as creations of God, the way the great sages of old used to. And somehow in the commercialization of society, we've been grouped into different groups and groups are not a bad thing. We have to have our own identity. And as Jews, we have a healthy Jewish identity. But my healthy Jewish identity shouldn't affect negatively how I treat other human beings. On the contrary.
0: Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, it's maybe an interesting way of bringing out the point, but I remember reading about how when the, the Jews were celebrating once they crossed the Red Sea, when God put the waters together on the Egyptians and they were drowning and they were...
1: My handiwork is drowning and you guys are dancing and Correct. singing. Right. And so I think that's in general a perspective. you know Certain things are necessities, like a war is a necessity. But my kids ask me, why is there war? What am I going to tell them? That it's all holy wars? They're not all holy wars. They're not all wars that are based... You got to be honest with them that the world doesn't operate the way it should. It's not a messianic area, which we wait for. But in the interim, do our best to deflate a lot of that stuff that goes out. That's why, you know, I took one of my daughters, Shoshana, she's doing a school project. And I took her to the local mosque in Bozeman. It's not like I don't recognize that we got a problem with Muslims. In other words, in the sense of how they teach their children to look at Jews. But that doesn't mean I can't on a local level have that interaction that could be healthy and see the commonalities. He was a Turkish Muslim. He, he, you know, the belief in one God, the way they pray, they pray, you know, that all of that, we need to learn to do better with that. I'm a work in progress. Don't get me wrong. I'm far from perfect. I grew up in the hood. I have a long, (laughs) I need rehab for a long time. But until I get there, my kids are really training me to, to do better and better in that
0: realm. Totally. On the topic of kids and family, I want to transition to um, to something which I find fascinating, and I think which is um, a stigma which you're breaking down and, and really showing up for. We it. broke it. It's done. It's, it's done. done. It's gone. It's, it's, it it's gone. It's it's, it's in done. the past. Got right. it. The stereotype is over. The taboo is gone. Fair enough. You, um, you and your wife, um, and God bless you both, um, have adopted to date five children. Javi would love the
1: fact that you said to date. Cause she would love to keep it expanding it. So oh. she's definitely on your team. I'm keeping, I'm no, keep, no, I'm keeping it, over. I'm keeping it do open. You have, do you have,
0: are you, are you tapped at five right now? Are you? Uh, it's not tapped. Our life is very, very busy with five. Okay. Adoptive kids. And we'll talk about the adoption Let's process that, in a moment. Yeah.
1: Adoptive kids, uh, all children keep parents very, very busy, but adoptive kids have naturally um, issues that are challenging. It's called, there's some diagnosis like attachment issues because they know that they're adopted and they know that they're not with their biological parents. There's, so there's mental health challenges, there's emotional challenges and we deal with those challenges. We don't sweep it under the rug we deal with it very so so it's a lot of work um, but Javi would definitely be open to, to filling Javi. up the house with as many kids as she can. Um, I'm not gonna bring you into all our internal
0: debates or, or or conversations about that, but she'd be very proud that you said to date yeah. um, the so I, I you just I want to unpack a bunch of things that you just mentioned, but I mean before before jumping into that, could you take me back to that time because within our within our culture within our with our community having getting married, having children, and having a lot of children is a very big part of of our being of our identity of what it means to be successful
1: and i, I you know i i want i want to debunk a myth if if you wish you know it's not about i don't think most people I can't speak for everyone, but i don't from from what I understand and from what I interact with a lot of people, I don't think it's about A success story, right? I don't think people see it as a success story. Oh, I have X amount of kids. I think we truly on some level, um, maybe not every day when the kids are making you crazy, but on a deeper level where it actually matters, we see kids as a blessing. And every kid that comes into our family is a blessing. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we want to have as many of these blessings as possible. You know, I have, thank God, I have this beautiful uncle and aunt in Kronites who have 15 children, no twins, no No twins, they're all,
0: uh, so same husband, same same
1: wife. In Montana, I tell them it's the same husband, same wife. It's not a mixed family, uh, you know, step kid. No, they're all 15. Um, And it's incredible to be able to see that as a blessing. I could see why people freak out about it because I have five and I don't know how anyone does it. But when I had one, I said, I don't know how anyone could do two. When I had two, I swore you could never do more than two. And here I am with five and somehow I'm surviving, not only surviving, but thriving. But we got married and like every other Orthodox Jewish couple, you know, the next thing on the agenda was to start popping out babies. Sure. And Hashem, God, had different plans. You know, we went through the infertility journey, which was an incredibly, uh, was a rewarding journey journey because there's incredible people like in the organization, Bani Olam, my dear friend who became a dear friend during that era, Rabbi Shlomo Bachner, who's the CEO of Barney Olam, a great a man. guy you should interview someday. A great man. No, um, an incredible him. man. I a, met him a, once a, or twice. And, a, a baba of a that's an incredible human being. Um, he, he took us through that journey And the end of the journey was about a year into the infertility treatment or a little less than that. We were at one of the hospitals, big hospitals here in New York. And the doctor came in and said, and I quote, you're not going to be having biological children. Um, You probably should look into adoption. Now, I'm 26 years old. Javi, I think, was 23 or 22 at the time. And your whole world is shattered. It's not a, it's not figurative. It's not, oh, well, let's try another option. You know, in, in, in the secular world, you try, some people take it obviously different than others, but as a general rule, we tried that route. We're going to go the other route now. Who ever heard of adoption growing up in crime? What's H? the other route? Just out of- adoption. Oh, adoption, saying, okay. You know, you go through IVF, oh, right. you do all the infertility treatment. There's all these, there's, there's Tesi treatment, there's IVF treatment, there's... What about there's, Mothers? So, so in the secular world, that's definitely more common. How that relates in Jewish law is a little bit more complex. It's not so simple. But we we got that news and, you know, you're barely recovering from the medical procedures and you're lumped with the news and no one in Montana knows what's going on. So you're in this little bubble. All your siblings are are having babies. There's strollers and there's all this big visual mess going on in your head and your world is literally falling apart. And you have to try to make believe on the outside that you're still functioning when you're really not. Mm. and there's this young couple who barely know each other. You're married for a year and a half, two years. I mean, you don't barely know each other, but it's new. Yeah. And now your whole life has changed, and the trajectory of your life has changed, and you don't know where to go. And I'll never forget those moments outside the hospital when, you know, we were heading, leaving the hospital with this, with this news. I had two siblings in the back seat, two of my siblings who were silent. They didn't know what to say. Um, my father, who's an Israeli slash, you know, with Russian parents, oh, and, yeah. You know, he's in the driver's seat and says, what, what in the hell do the doctors know? <laughs> okay. I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> Miracles, you know. Yeah, right, right. And then my father-in-law, who's a, a composed um, Chabad rabbi from Texas, who calls his oldest daughter, Javi's the oldest of nine, who just found out that biologically, at least the way medical, you know, developments stand at that time, it's not going to have children. Um, and he says to us on the phone, there must be children out there that God wants you to raise. And he planted a seed. I mean, we weren't in a place to even thinking of inter- internalizing that, but it definitely planted a seed. And before we left back to Montana, two weeks later, we went to visit Shlomo Bachner, who himself adopted a child. He doesn't have biological children, Shlomo. Right. And he gave us a little bit of an idea of what that entails, but it was all new. It was a mess in our head and it took months and months to really digest that route. And then you find out after all that that now you're finally ready to adopt and you find out that the route of adoption is incredibly hard. It's wow. not what you think it's gonna be. Oh, we'll just go over to Sign the adoption agency. Oh, yes, yeah, sure. You always have these incredible stories, videos you see on, you know, on, on Good Morning America. Sure, right. But in reality, it's an incredible journey that cost a fortune. But we were ready. We were gonna go down that route, but we had no idea what to do. Wow. And you know, there was so much stuff mixed into it. What's that
0: what's that process look
1: like when it comes to You gotta get a home study, which is social services comes to your house to, a, to assess, are you a good parent?
0: Yeah. And, uh, and how, they do they, came. how do they know that you're not putting on a show when they come?
1: Because they do this for long enough to know. To know. There's, a, there's limited amounts you can do. You know, they don't tell you they're going to open your refrigerator and then they open it up to see if there's actually food in the house. Ah. They don't tell you that they're going to need you to have a fire extinguisher. And then they look to see if you have a fire extinguisher. They, go, they know what they're doing sure. for the most part. In our Montana, there's no Jewish family services. So we had Catholic social services doing our home studies. Um, they were incredible people. It was a guy, Sam, who took us through four of our five adoptions. Incredible guy. Um, who really learned a lot about Judaism in the process and really became good friends. Um, And so they do the home study and then you start networking. Where are you going to find the baby? And do you want a Jewish baby? Do you want a baby that isn't Jewish, that's going to convert to Judaism? And what's that process like? Um, Are you okay with a non-white baby, a non-Caucasian baby, a black baby, a Hispanic baby, a mixed baby, an Asian baby? There's Mm. all these things that you got to deal with. And you have to have a lot of open couples uh, uh, the one thing we learned really did go, quickly... Did you go to
0: therapy for that? Did you have someone guiding you through this process? We
1: had people guiding us. We probably should have started therapy earlier than we did, but we definitely involved therapists who are incredible. I highly recommend finding a good therapist who knows this world. But the, the most incredible thing that you learn is that either you're a couple doing this together or you're going to end up in divorce court. Because the the reality is, is that taking on that kind of um, reality of adopting is a new world and it's a world that has incredible challenges. And if you're not doing it as a team, it's going to rip you guys apart. Mm. And so Javi and I, in an an incredible way, we we joined this journey together. And I think that's one of the unique things about our our, our relationship and our marriage, not only in, in the private, but even in the community is that we've been through so much together that it's like, Nothing really phases us anymore. It's just a question like, okay, what does God have up to sleep this week? You know, oh, throw this at us. Let's see what the Brooks can do with this one. I feel like God sits around and says, you know, the Brooks haven't had something in a while that's really wild. Let's throw something at them and see what they'll do with this one. Wow. Who's he, who's he going to give the challenge to? The one that failed the first time? Let's give it to the one that dealt with it and came through on the other side. Wow. And so we adopted our first child in o in 2009, Chaya, who was born in Russia with, as a preemie with a lot of medical issues. And Baruch Hashem, in a miraculous way, her medical issues have, you know, all, all came, it all turned out okay. But we adopted her when she was about, about two months after she was born. But she was only seven pounds when we adopted her because she was born as a preemie. Sure. Um, and she was our first. And the moment you make that first, minute you hold your baby in, in your arms for the first time, it's literally like a gift from Hashem, a gift from God that those years and months of pain and agony and internal turmoil disappear. It literally disappears. The moment you say it's an adoption, it's not the same. You're right. It's not the same. Uh, An adoptive child does not have the same bond with their parent like a biological child does. But the bond that's created is unmatched. There's nothing like it in the world because it takes a lot more work.
0: Totally. Totally. So you mentioned Chaya was is, was he adopted a girl from Russia? She she was born in Russia. Born in Russia, I'm sorry. She, she came to America
1: for medical treatment because of her preemie status, and that's when her biological mother realized that she just spent ten hours on a flight with her. and This is not for her, and by literally by Hashem's by God's incredible intervention. She called her Chabad rabbi in Moscow and said, I'm giving this baby up for adoption.
0: And she was born Jewish? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
1: Um, I won't answer every question about that. I think some of that stuff is personal because some of my kids don't even know. Some of them are too young as far as the Jewish part. Okay. Um, I'll talk more vaguely about Chaya was definitely born Jewish. All right. Um, and she...
0: That, that, gets, that, gets, that gets a little complicated, right? Growing up, as they grow older, they have to choose... Judaism for themselves or they have to convert? They do when they
1: turn bar about mitzvah 12 or 13, but choosing is not what some think it is, meaning they think that, oh my gosh, you have to sit down and have a, a, you know, a crash course. These kids are growing up Jewish and they went through a conversion. So it's called Adaz Bez and the Jewish uh, r- r- tr- Rabbinical Tribunal approves it at, at, at a young age. When they turn bar about mitzvah, you basically have to ask them if they're happy being a member of this family you know, the Jewish community. If they affirm that they are, if that's considered their affirmation that they're part of Am Yisrael, part of the Jewish people. But Chaya was born Jewish, but the rabbi in Moscow was hesitant because he's like, you know, sure, you after a 10-hour flight, you want, but she was very young and he flew with his wife to New Jersey to make sure she knows what she's doing. And once he realized that she was really adamant about giving the baby to another family to raise, so he knew me and he called me and that was the novelty that he happened to know that I was looking for an adopted baby. No uh, one knew. He happened to know no because baby. he's a friend of mine. And so God literally put the pieces of the puzzle together and that day when I stood in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, it was a Tuesday. I think it was November 21st. I think so. It was in November of 2009. It, it was it was crazy how in a minute you go from being a saddened, internally broken person because I sh- because God gave you something in your life that you think was wrong, right? I thought that I- God was really unkind to me. I thought like, how could he dare do this to me? I'm living in Montana. We're driving seven hours each way every month to use the mikveh, 14 hours round wow. trip to go to Salt Lake City to use the mikveh. And us, this is who you give infertility to? I can give you a list in the world of people that probably could deserve that a little better. Right,
0: right. right?
1: And I don't mean that, you know, like I have a list. I'm just sure. saying that us. Why Why me? Why Not only why me, but I thought like, For heaven's sake, out of all people, we should be the ones to have those biological kids. As it turns out, God had a totally different plan, but for a good reason. Mm -hmm. He knew there was going to be these kids, which and I only say that now because I see the fact. He knew there's going to be these kids that need a loving, embracing home, a family, parents that will take them for who they are. But also deal with the with the challenges that come down the road. And that's something we didn't know when we started the adoption process, right? Yeah. Now
0: we're experts. The idea of what the, the, the mental, all the mostly challenges emotional. Are, the emotional, emotional
1: issues that an adoptive child, as wonderful as you may be, the kids are not upset at you. They're not acting out because you're bad. Right? We take as parents, we tend to take things personal, but it's not personal. It's kids going through whatever they're going through. And it's not just with adoptive kids, it's in general. Kids yeah. are expressing themselves in crazy ways. Because they're trying to get a message across. And either you're going to hear the message or you'll get offended and and, and respond wrongly. And then the result will only exacerbate the problem instead of dealing with it. So sure, kids are going to act out, especially if they have attachment issues. Deal with it. Get the help for it and guide them properly. They're not out to get you. No kid is out to get their parents, but certainly not adoptive kids. They just want to make sure you never forget that they know that they're adopted and that they have another side to their life. That you're not familiar with because it's internal. Mm-hmm. And that's it's, it's a lot to take in. Listen, no, no parent likes knowing that their kid is struggling. But you have to deal with that reality and deal with it
0: well. Right. When do you find, when's the right time to tell the children that they're Day adopted?
1: One. Day one. Don't ever hold back. From day one, you read them stories. There's happy adoption day. You do whatever you got to do. As early as possible. As early as possible. There used to be an era where people would hide it. It's catastrophic. What are you hiding from your kid? They'll find that when they're 18 that they're adopted. They'll want to kill you for keeping it a secret. What were you hiding? Right? Why are you hiding? Our kids ask questions. And I ask them sometimes, are you ever going to want to meet your biological family or your biological mom, biological dad? Some of them you know, know how to answer that. Some of them are not sure. There's definitely curiosity. Don't hide it from them.
0: Because what, what? why? What's the goal? Are you scared you may lose them?
1: No. I think when you hide it, it's because you're scared you're going to lose them. I think if you're giving them an incredible upbringing, you're not going to lose them. Will there be moments where they'll do things with their biological parents that will sort of shake you at the core? Like why they go? You have to remember it's part of who they are. And you, you can ignore that all you want and make believe it's not real. They're not out to get you and they're not it's just part of their story. And denying a child part of their story does not help you or them. Not in the short term, not in the long term. So we went from 09, we adopted our first kid. And literally four months later, a Chabad rabbi called me and said, you know, I don't know how to ask this, but there's a situation. That's how the, all the conversations start.
0: Uh, you already know that there's... This well, that was new. And he says, right. you know, there's
1: someone in my community. And he gives me the whole shebang. Sure. And so we said we would, we would adopt the kid. And I never forget, and this is going to be, so we have a, a child, they're 13 months apart. Um, the adoptions were even less than 13 months apart because Chaya, we adopted at two months. So it was only 11 months later, we adopted a second kid. Wow, like Irish twins. Exactly. So people the Irish twins and people say, oh, they look alike. And I crack up about that, you know, <laughs> because they don't know if they're adopted. It's interesting what you hear comes out of people's mouths. That is
0: hilarious. Oh, she looks like you. Exactly.
1: Oh, I get that all the time. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. Yeah. Well, there is some truth about the fact that adoptive kids... Some of them end up looking like their are adoptive parents, but you can Google that on your own. That's fascinating. But, but I think with my mother, my mother was still alive. It was before she passed away. And she said to me, basically said, are you out of your mind? What are you adopting another one? Like it's adoption. It's not biological. It's not, there's no, like there's no biblical. Tongue? Yeah. And I said to her, I said, Ma, I thought you taught us that we don't believe in family planning. <laughs> and she burst out laughing and she told everyone she was sick in the hospital. And she said to all the nurses, my son in Montana is crazy. He's using my words against me. He's using my education against me. But it's true in a sense that we had an opportunity. You asked me before if, if we're done at five. I can't answer that because none of our five adoptions happened by us seeking the adoptions. You it literally it. came into our plate. Mm-hmm. And so if God put something in our plate again, I would like to say that I would think about it, but I don't know that I would. If it's put in my plate like the other five have, I'd probably run with it. And um, so 11 months later, we adopted ZC. Um, we had a three-year break. where Again, nothing came our way. Or, or things well, came
0: well, our way. Well, let ahead. me ask you. Yeah. Like you said nothing comes your way. But I feel like there's, I mean, from my understanding, there's so many children out there who need adoption. It's is, not, there, but, is there a proactive approach that you can take to there, like there if that's something that you be, want there
1: could be a proactive approach but the foster care system in our country is broken and so just because you see a kid in foster care and you're dying to just take that kid sure. home and give it an incredible life yeah the system doesn't always allow that right mm. and so there's a lot of procedural stuff there could be a relative involved that says hey I don't want uh, you know I don't want the kid to go to an adoptive family I, I want to you know so it's, it becomes complicated. But we did have a break. But the reality is that we got calls about adoption and nothing panned out. And mm-hmm. then three years later, I got a call from an activist in New York who said, this is a situation, it's always a situation. Yeah. And he said, you know, would you be open to taking a black or biracial kid?
0: Which Yeah. Would you let me to my next question? Oh, Mickey? go ahead. Yeah, I was going to, which you're already touching on with many, your, yeah. your son, um, yeah. What was, yeah. About so I would, adopting I, a black child within... I'm, a Jew,
1: it's funny because many is, a, is, is born to a Jewish mother. Okay. Um, and I got the call and I was very unsure about it personally. Not because I'm scared. Not not. It wasn't a racial perspective. I was concerned about what that would be like for him growing up, A, in a mostly white family, but more importantly, in a mostly white community. And and what what kind of challenges am I giving this kid just by welcoming him into that community and i have to give credit as I, I try to always do but Javi was the one in general with adoption in general with that you know thinking out of the box Javi's really ahead of the game i always join her i eventually yeah. get it but it takes me time i'm a slow learner <laughs> but she was like of course well, what's the issue because the kid's black so what so we'll deal there's going to be challenges in life deal with it don't 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 with you know leave a Jewish kid who needs a home at the side of the road just because it doesn't fit your particular narrative right now and we were on board and the reality is that i can't even imagine life without many um first of all he's an incredible rapper you should hear the way rhythm? he copies Nissen Black. It's, I, I guess it's natural, genetic. I can't explain it. I could never in the life of mine. I can copy a lot of he singers. He has flow. He has rhythm. Flow and rhythm. And literally. I mean, one day he's going to be on a stage somewhere doing this. All right. I mean, all right. Watch amazed. out, Nissan Black. He wants to be in the Vikings. He wants to be a football player, which is a possibility too, Fair the Minnesota enough. Vikings. But the reality is, is that he's he's his own kid. And he knows that he's black. And he wants. He asks me about We talk about the black. white. Well, he's not. A, he's, he's also very smart. You know? He's six and a half. Wow. Um, and he's very yeah. in tune to the reality. You know, he asked me once, you know, he once said to me sitting at the kitchen counter, he said, um, he said, Abba, um, I wish I was white. And I said, I wish I was black. So he looks at me like, what are you talking about? So I right away took out my laptop and showed him some pictures. So he looks at a picture of Barack Obama. I I showed him a picture of Barack Obama. He goes, he's not black. Uh, Don't ask me what that means. Then he saw a picture of uh, Colin Powell. He goes, he's not black. Okay. Then I showed him a picture of Oprah. He goes, she's black. (laughs) So... I don't know what he sees different than I do. Maybe it's right. just male versus female. I have no idea. Right. But we talk about it openly. I mean, my daughter Chaya was once in the bath years, and she said, you know, if it wasn't for Martin Luther King, because it was Martin Luther King days, if it wasn't Martin Luther King, many couldn't be part of our family. And that kind of observation, wow. that reality. That's a real um, and, and, and And I think that that is a new thing for the... Listen, there's always been black Orthodox Jews, including in Kranites. There's some families that were always African you know, black. I just, you know, yeah. but... You know, having one that's part of an entirely, for now, an entirely Caucasian family is a different component. And I think recognizing that, again, that's part of his journey. He's going to ask questions. He's going to have to deal with that reality. Some of it he'll deal with now. Some of it he'll deal with later. But every kid has that. You know, our Shoshana, our daughter who we adopted when she was 12 in 2016, she came to our summer camp.
0: Wow, that must she came be- to
1: our summer camp. I never adopted a teenager, a preteen. Who in their right mind would ever do that? Right. You know, we adopted babies. Now and we, we imagine how much more trouble, how much more challenging Sure, that because be. she had 12 years of history and right. it wasn't very good history. But she came to our summer camp for two weeks and basically didn't want to leave. And so with the help of her grandmother, make a long story short, she wanted to be adopted by us. And we really, that was the hardest one to answer, that call, because one thing we knew, that a 12-year-old, a, she's a preteen and we're young parents. I mean, at the time I was 35 and the uh, and, uh, Javi was, you know, 30, 32, 31. Yeah. But the reality is, is that she's taken us on a whole different journey, a journey into the world of how do you deal with, with all that history and get it, get yourself cleaned up in the sense of getting the rehabilitation people need. You know, we, we, again, we try to sweep things under the rug, but you can't, you got to deal with it. You got to get the mental health treatment, you know, so we sent her into a wilderness program. She was in a wilderness, uh, what they call a wilderness school, but it's a it's a it's 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 an emergency program where you get the help you need. For four months, she lived out in the wilderness in Utah. Wow. And now she's in a therapeutic equine therapy school in Utah.
0: So even with your, you're adopting her, she's hardly even home now. She, she, well, she lived at home for two years. Thinking, okay. And
1: now we have to put her, we, I mean, we got nice. her into a place that will give her the journey, allow her journey to flourish. She was just home for Hanukkah, which is incredible. But yeah, I mean, th- these are real hard things that parents need to do. Um yeah. And then a year after Shoshana, we adopted another baby. Mm. So we had, we adopted four as babies, one as a 12 year old. But that takes you on a whole day. Listen, I have a 15 and a half year old daughter, and I'm 38 years old. This is not something I would have ever signed up for under normal circumstances. But God, as long as you allow God to, to to do the planning and you just play along, you're in much better shape.
0: Let, let, let God do the planning, and, you, and as you say, along. You, and, you, and you do the parenting. Because no matter what, I mean, no matter what, no matter how much we try to figure out and out, you know, we're going to outsmart God, we can't. What I find amazing is that you, even through all the different challenges that you had through life, it never came to a point, for what it seems, that you said you stopped believing in God, but rather you just got upset at God or you're angry at God. Oh, I had but moments where I was always- angry.
1: Absolutely. I never stopped believing in him because that's just, it's the easy way out. And it's only temporary because I actually, I feel bad for atheists all the time because I mean, if you get upset, who are you going to be upset at? Really, really, it's terrible. I, I honestly yourself, pity them, I,
0: guess, you know, I mean, yourselves, the world,
1: nature, come on, I gotta blame nature, there's only a limited amount that I can blame on nature, so having that relationship with God, we've had our ups and downs, I had a friend that once said, you know, he can't understand why God did this to Chaim when my mother died, he said, I can't understand, a year earlier, he finally got you on board, because the miracle of Chaya's adoption, he says, now he just ruined it, he had the great, greatest marketing guy on God's team, on Team God, and now he messed it up. So, but, but I do, you know, we have better days, but I definitely believe that, that internalization is where it's key. I don't know, without Hasidus, without the study of the depth of Hasidic philosophy, I don't know where I'd be today spiritually. But that has allowed me to realize that a relationship with God is not something that's just superficial, that comes and goes based on, God is not my ATM machine. Just because I showed up and said, God, give me X, Y, and Z, doesn't mean he has, he has to. Right. He does it on his pace with what he thinks is right at the right time. And when it's the right time, it's like the sea splits right in front of you. And if it's not the right time, no matter how you can stand on your head, nothing's going to change. God's time. God's time
0: and God's operation. Just let him do his thing. What are your biggest fears for your children as they grow up and grow, A, in, in this adoptive family, but also in within the community? I feel like it's still, it's still very fresh, very new. Um, my, my I, I
1: don't know if it's a fear. I mean, I, I think every parent fears or, or or is concerned about how the children will eventually how they'll turn out. You know, mostly as being ethical, moral. In my case, religious and observant Jews. But more than that, I would like, I would, I would hope that what they get in our home, they'll walk away with a, you know, a healthy identity and a health, a comfortability with their personality, with who they are and allow it to manifest itself, however that goes, but they should be comfortable in their own skin. And I think that's something that I saw growing up where we wanted everyone to be the same. Human beings are never the same. God didn't create human beings to be the same, With adoptive children, certainly not. And so the minute you know, I recognize that the results are out of my control, something that a great therapist, Brad Reedy, talks about a lot, he's a wilderness therapist, and it's out of my control, let go of the outcomes. Let the outcomes happen on their own. Yeah. You know, my wife, Javi, and I, you know, on her Instagram, she's very big, it's called, I think it's at Javi Brook. At Javi Brook, okay. C-H-A-V-I-E-B-R-U-K. Um, she's very, she talks a lot about this stuff because we read these books, you know, a lot of them together. We listen to the podcast together. Letting go of outcomes and letting, you know, in our world, the, letting God do the rest of the work in the secular world, they don't use God as the but letting it, things pan out. But let Hashem do His thing. Mm. You know, do your best.
0: Let go give of that your control. kids.
1: Let go of the control because you're not in control anyhow. They're going right. to do whatever they they want to do at the end of the day. Let go of it and let things happen. Give it your give your children the very best. And if you want them to be religious Chabad people, give it everything you've got. But stop thinking you can control the outcomes because you can't. Only God controls the outcomes. And living that way, you know, even telling our kids things like. Um, I'm proud of you. We don't do that anymore. Okay. I'm not proud of you. I hope you're proud of yourself.
0: Wow. It's not about me.
1: Right. The, the minute I say be... to a kid, I'm proud of you, means I'm proud of you, meaning it's about me, not right. you. Right. So letting go of that, and it's not an easy thing for parents to do, but it's truly a, a very rewar- rewarding way to live, to have a wholesome house to the best of our ability.
0: Hmm. And then well, pray a lot. You got to <laughs> pray a lot exactly. if you want your kids to turn out half decent. Pray, pray, pray. Through this process, What's a big way that you've changed?
1: Well, I, I think all of it has changed me incredibly in being more patient, more understanding and, st- and really pausing and saying, you know, the world doesn't always work. The, the, the world isn't always the way I see it. There's other perspectives. Even my children, I have to try to see that they have a way of seeing the world that I don't see and try to sort of get myself into their shoes and try to see it from their perspective, especially as adoptive children. And I think if we did that more as a society, the world would
0: look a lot better. Mm. What, do you have a message to your children? One day they'll be, you know, the fans of Mayor K, they'll listen to the podcasts. What's something you want to tell them?
1: That They should know that the love is unconditional and there's nothing they can do to mess with that. I think they know that already, but they can, no matter what they do, the love will be there and the the warm embrace will be there. And uh, so they, they shouldn't try to act out, try to test if they're going to be loved because the answer is always going to be the same. The love, the love will always be there no matter what.
0: Wow. Beautiful, powerful. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. My pleasure. You're a legend. Now come to Montana. Are God willing. What are you doing All in what? New York in this God forsaken <laughs> place? Come to God's country. <laughs> I got the invitation. That's I right. would love to be there. I'd love to meet the family. God willing, very soon. You want to do a podcast? Do it with many, not with me. <laughs> All right. All right. Coming for you, many. All the best. Thank you so much for My pleasure. Have a trip you back well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Rabbi Khayyam Shalbrook, for coming through and making the time. And, of course, thank you, Mushy, for supporting and believing in this podcast. Mushy.com, your one-stop shop for some incredible baby products. And thank you for listening to The Great Day Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, comment, rate. It goes a long, long way. And check in with us every Monday for a new episode of The Great Day Podcast as well. Until then, like I always say, stay positive, be happy. I'm Mayor Kay, and have a great day.